The sermon you are about to hear was recorded at Grace Baptist Church, Cape Coral, Florida. For additional sermons and more information, visit our website at truegraceofgod.org. Many years ago, I heard evangelist Billy Graham say that there are two great tragedies in life. One is not getting the things that you want. The other is getting the things that you want. We all tend to understand the first one of those tragedies because deprivation can often be a great trial. To live without something that you want or that you sense that you need can create all kinds of difficulties. It can make you feel that your life is diminished, incomplete, or somehow unsatisfied. That's why we diligently try to make up for what we lack, to gain for what we gain the things we're missing. But accomplishments, attainments, can also lead to tragedy because they can lead you to feel self-sufficient, to feel satisfied and full of pride in your satisfaction. J.B. Phillips, the famed Bible translator of the last century, penned a biography, an autobiography, shortly before he died, and he gave it this title, The Price of Success. And this passage I want to read to you explains why the book was given that name. He writes, I was in a state of some excitement throughout 1955. My work was intrinsically exciting. My health was excellent. My future prospects were rosier than my wildest dreams could suggest. Applause, honor, and appreciation met me everywhere I went. I was well aware of the dangers of sudden wealth and took some severe measures to make sure that, although comfortable, I should never be rich. I was not nearly so aware of the dangers of success. The subtle corrosion of character, the unconscious changing of values, and the secret monstrous growth of a vastly inflated idea of myself seeped slowly into me. Vaguely, I was aware of this, and like some frightful parody of St. Augustine, I prayed, Lord, make me humble, but not yet. I can still savor the sweet and gorgeous taste of it all, the warm admiration, the sense of power, of overwhelming ability, of boundless energy, and never-failing enthusiasm. It's very plain to me now why my one-man kingdom of power and glory had to stop. We quickly recognize the trials that come with loss, with failure. And so we offer consolation and comfort to people that we see struggling with a failure because we don't want them to wallow in that. We don't want them to sense that their life is over or in any way to think that they should gain their identity and have it bound up in their failure. These and other dangers that go with failure, as I said, we easily recognize. But brothers and sisters, have you stopped to think seriously about the dangers that go with success? The dangers of accomplishing your goals, of hitting the marks you set for yourself, of getting what you want out of life, of accomplishing great things. It takes a steady hand to hold a full cup. 
And sometimes when the cup becomes full, what we see is a disaster in the wake. How many times have we witnessed prosperity become a subtle pathway to spiritual devastation in the lives of people? In one sense, this could be described as the whole history of our nation today. We have become so inebriated with our successes that in a drunken stupor, we've stumbled away from the very God who blessed us with them. The New England Puritan pastor, Cotton Mather, prophetically warned of this very thing on our shores in 1702 when he said, Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. This pattern, however, is not limited to nations. It also can be seen in the lives of individuals of many people, tragically, good people, godly people, people who have been eminently useful in God's kingdom. We will see it played out today in our study of the judge named Gideon. Gideon was a very successful leader in the life of Israel in that era between the time that Joshua led them into the land of promise and established them there and the time, hundreds of years later, when the monarchy began under Saul and then David and Solomon. During this period of judges, God raised up different men who would serve his nation and rescue them out of oppression and lead them into seasons of peace. And Gideon was one such man. Today we're going to look at the last half of his life as it's recorded for us in Joshua or in Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. This passage that will be our text this morning starts on page 207 in the Bibles that are provided for you. This chapter, Joshua 8, is the third and final chapter that describes to us something of the ministry of the man Gideon as he led the nation uh, during this era when they were under oppression. In chapter 6 and 7, we see Gideon transformed by the grace of God from somewhat a cowardly, reserved, insignificant man into a mighty warrior who with only 300 soldiers leads a successful campaign in battle against the great army of the Midianites and their allies. In chapter 7, we read how Gideon and his small army of men thoroughly rout the Midianites in a most improbable way. We see God doing this through Gideon, first by reducing Gideon's army by over 99% from 32,000 down to 300 men, and then giving them the victory so that no one can say, look at what I have done, look at what Gideon has done, look at how mighty our army is. In chapter 8, we have the aftermath of that great battle. We see Gideon mopping up, going after the remnants of the Midianite army. And then we see the nation of Israel entering into a, an extended period of peace and prosperity. The changes that Gideon undergoes in his character that are revealed in chapter 8 are sober. They're a warning to all of us of the dangers and inadequacy of success. So follow along from Judges chapter 8 as I read the whole chapter for us this morning. Judges 8 will begin in verse 1. We're going to go all the way down through verse 35. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. 
And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebezer? God has given into your hand the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel, and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkar with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah, and Jagbatha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men, and he came to the men of Succoth, and he said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, and taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill him. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments and pendants and purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Orphrah. 
And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubal, son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah in the Abiezerites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made baal Berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubal, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Success is both dangerous and inadequate. We see this in the life of Gideon. The things he accomplished that by many standards would recognize him as being a great success as a judge in Israel. And yet, in the aftermath of his success, witnessing his life and decisions that he made and consequences of those decisions that reveal the danger and inadequacy of his success. This chapter can be divided into five different vignettes regarding this period of Gideon's life. What I want us to do is to look at these events of Gideon's life and then to go back and look at lessons to be learned from these events recorded for us in the Word of God. The first vignette is found in the first three verses where the tribe of Ephraim complains to Gideon about not being included and Gideon disarms them with the way that he responds. Ephraim was one of the strongest of the twelve tribes. They were a tribe that thought pretty highly of themselves, as we will see in the 12th chapter of this book we're working our way through. Gideon had called on them to help cut off the Midianites who had escaped the route in the initial battle. So in chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, he sent out word, and the Ephraimites went and cut off the retreating remnant of the Midianite army. The Ephraimites take offense, however, that Gideon did not invite them to come and participate in the main battle. And their complaint, their fierce complaint against Gideon indicates at least two things. One, it indicates that they wanted to get glory for themselves. This was a massive victory and they weren't there and they wanted to have some glory for having been there. But secondly, it indicates that they probably wouldn't have followed Gideon's leadership anyway because they seem to be a tribe pretty full of themselves. Well, how does Gideon respond? Well, on first reading, it looks like he responds with diplomacy, acknowledging their superiority and his inferiority. He even puts it in terms of a proverb. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. He said, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? So Abiezer is his clan in his tribe, and he's just saying, look, man, the, the very best we have in our harvest doesn't even compare to the things that you just gleaned, the things that just are left over from your harvest. And then he says, 
God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Orb and Zeb. They'd killed them. You read that in the last chapter. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And so Gideon mollifies their anger. It looks like he's an illustration here of Proverbs 15.1 that says, a soft answer turns away wrath. Because these men are wrathful toward him. Gideon just simply smooths things over by speaking in self-deprecating ways. But it's worth noting also that he missed an opportunity to say how that battle came about. That God's the one who reduced the army to 300 and that God was determined to get glory for himself, not to allow glory to be shared among Gideon or the army. That he was a man himself under authority and that the victory belonged to the Lord alone. That didn't come out of his mouth. Well, that's the first scene. We shift to the second scene, beginning in verse 4, where Succoth and Penuel, the men of this city, refused to help Gideon and his men when they were hungry. And then we see in a few verses following, verses 13 through 17, how Gideon punished them for their refusal to help. These Israelite cities, Succoth and Penuel, are east of the Jordan River. They are on the side of the Jordan that the Israelites began when they crossed into the land of promise, and they, they settled there under the tribe of Dan. Gideon and his three men, 300 men are exhausted yet pursuing, the text says, this final remnant of the Midianite army when they come to these two cities. They're specifically pursuing two kings in that Midianite army. When they go to Succoth and ask for food because they're exhausted, the leaders of Succoth say, no, we'll not give you food. We're afraid of the people you're pursuing. And the same thing was said by the leaders of the city of Penuel. Look at verse 6. The officials said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? They are very hesitant to get involved with what God is obviously doing. They were concerned that if they help Gideon and things don't go well for Gideon and the Midianite kings turn and defeat Gideon, that it will go badly for them and their cities in the future. Now, there's a real significant lesson here for us as God's people. I just want to pause a minute to point it out. For Bible-believing Christians, we ought to take to heart the negative example of these two cities. Because we today are being roundly criticized for being on the wrong side of history with regard to certain moral and social issues of our day. We're being ridiculed, sometimes threatened, about being on the wrong side of history because of our commitment to what the Bible says and our refusal to side with cultural elites and their values. We're being told that if we don't get on the right side of history, that in the future, at the bar of judgment, history will judge us very severely and harshly for being wrong. The inhabitants of Succoth and Penuel caved in to this kind of pressure. They refused to believe what God had revealed about his determination to defeat the Midianites through Gideon and his army. And that's why they would not support Gideon and his troops. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn a lesson from their failure. Determine that no matter how much pressure we face to renounce the Lord and what He has revealed in His Word, 
that we're determined to take our stand with God and what He has said, regardless of what side of history that places us on, because we're convinced the Word of God is true. Well, Gideon is angered at their refusal to help, and so he issues a promise to the both cities. He tells them that he's going to come and punish them when he returns victorious. He warns them that he will repay them. Verse 7, he says to the officials, When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And then verse 9, to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower, prominent tower in the city. Verses 15, 16, and 17, we read, the results of this threat being carried out. What does he do? Verse 16, he beats the leaders of Succoth shamefully with thorns and briars. Then in verse 17, not only did he tear down the Tower of Penuel, he killed all the men of the city. Well, that's the second scene that we have here in this chapter, giving us a little insight into a change that is taking place in Gideon. The third vignette is found in verses 10 through 12, and then followed up in verses 18 through 21, involving the capture of these two kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, and Gideon's vengeance being exacted upon them. Verse 10 tells us that these two kings and their army only had 15,000 survivors left after 120,000 had been defeated. This is the first time that we get some insight into the size of the victory that Gideon and his 300 men had in that battle. 300 men against 135,000 men, and only 15,000 ultimately escaped this far. Well, Gideon and his 300 men pursue these two kings and the 15,000 remnants of the army, and then having captured them, he takes them back home. And the scene of what happens back in Orphra opens up for us in verse 18. He commands his young son to execute them. He's going to execute these two kings. And he wants to humiliate them by having a boy do it. And so he tells his son, kill him. Well, his son doesn't want to. He's afraid. Verse 20 says, when he told Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill him, the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. And it's only after these two kings defiantly taunted Gideon that he himself put them to death. In verses 18 and 19, we are given an unexpected piece of information through the verbal exchange with Gideon and the two kings. Look at this. In verse 18, Gideon, having captured them, taken them back to his hometown, says to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? Think about the question. Is he looking for an answer? He's not wanting to know where did you put their bodies. He's not asking them for information that he doesn't have. It's a rhetorical question. And then they answered, as you are, so they were. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And Gideon says this in verse 19. They were my brothers, the son of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not have killed you. Here's what we learn. These two kings were responsible for the murder of Gideon's brothers. For those seven years when they led their troops in to ransack the tribes of Israel, they weren't just taking material possessions for themselves, they were also killing people. And some of the people they killed were the brothers of Gideon. 
Gideon knows this. That's why the question is rhetorical. He's not looking for information here. He's making a point. I've got you now. Where are the guys you killed at Mount Tabor? He wants them to know that he knows that he is about to do to them what they did to these men as he informs them that they were his brothers. Now this sheds significant light on what Gideon's doing and pursuing and executing these kings the way he did. He's no longer pursuing God's will in this. He's no longer even pursuing his nation's interests in this. He's pursuing a personal vendetta. He's out for revenge because he knows these two guys are responsible and he knows that he has them on the run and he's not going to stop until he exacts vengeance. The fourth scene is when the people of Israel come and offer kingship, a hereditary kingship to Gideon and to his offspring. But then Gideon verbally refuses to accept it, but then personally appropriates a royal standing among his people. It begins in verse 22. Representatives from at least his army and some of the tribes come and say, we want you to begin the establishment of a monarchy. All the other nations have a king. We want you to be our king. That's the thinking. Verse 22, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. You're our savior. We want you to rule over us. Well, in verse 23, Gideon's response is just right. I mean, his words indicate that he abjectly refuses the offer. He says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. What a great answer. That's the right answer to give. But he didn't just respond with his words. He also responded with actions. And his actions suggest that while verbally he rejected the offer, personally, he really did aspire to live like royalty. Look what he does. Verse 24. He secures part of the spoils of war from his soldiers. Verses 24 through 26. He said, I have a request of you. Give me the gold earrings that you accumulated rightfully as spoils of our battle. When calling upon his soldiers to do this and his soldiers' acquiescence in it, he's establishing himself as superior and them as inferior. He's putting them almost in the position of being a vassal for him. And then such a large amount of gold was collected, 1,700 shekels, about 34 pounds, maybe 50 pounds of gold in our day of weighing things like that. One writer says it takes on the character of a royal treasury. We also see that in addition to this, he kept the royal ornaments of the Midianite kings. You see that in verse 26? He kept the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. These became his personal possession. Verse 27, he constructed a golden ephod and put it in his hometown of Ophrah. Now, an ephod was a special vest. You go back and read in the book of Exodus, you'll see how God gave instructions for a special vest to be constructed, to be designed and worn by the high priest. And it was representative of his 
intercession and, and intervention and, and being an, uh, a mediator between the people and God. And in that vest, there were two stones called the Urim and the Thurim that were used to discern God's will, to make decisions about what God wanted the people to do by crafting an ephod, a gold ephod at that, Gideon was providing for the Israelites to come to him for guidance. He was detracting from the method of worship and guidance that God had established through the tabernacle, which was then present at Shiloh. In addition to this, Gideon established a harem of women that would serve him, be his wives and concubines, including a Canaanite concubine because the text says a concubine from Shechem. From Shechem. I'll not be your king, is what he says. But then he begins to start to do things that make him look like, live like a king. To top it all off, verse 31 he names the son of his concubine Abimelech. Abimelech. Which means, my father, the king. If there's one piece of advice that everyone should heed when evaluating politicians, it's this. Do not just listen to what they say. Watch what they do. And when we apply that to Gideon, we see that, yes, his words say the right thing, and yet his actions betray the very thing that he professed. It's apparent that though verbally he refused the offer of kingship, personally he aspired to live among the Israelites as if he were a king. The fifth vignette is found in verse 28 and verses 33 through 35. And it's like a postscript. We're told in verse 28, the land had peace for 40 years of Gideon's last days. Gideon lived to be an old man, verse 32. And then as soon as Gideon died, the people forgot the Lord and reverted to pagan worship. Look at verse 33. This is a refrain that we hear in various forms throughout the book of Judges. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had, who, had them, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. People who had so highly esteemed Gideon earlier forgot him and did not show love to his family. Now, if all we knew about Gideon was what we have here in this eighth chapter of Judges, we would be tempted not to judge him very kindly because he comes across as shrewd, as cruel, as deceitful, as conniving, as self-seeking. And yet, as we have seen in chapters 6 and 7, he also was a man who took God at his word. He was a man who believed God and took an army of 300 against an army of 135,000. And so there's more to this man than meets the eye. Furthermore, we must not forget that Hebrews 11.32 names Gideon as one of the Old Testament saints of God whose faith is worth emulating. He's a man of faith. 
So what are we to make of him? How are we to evaluate this man who was so successful in ridding Israel of Midianite oppression, but who was so severely flawed in his own right? Well, I believe that God would have Gideon set before us in his word as an example and a warning, a warning of the inadequacy and the danger that goes with success. So there's lessons to learn here. And those are two broad lessons. The first is this. Success is dangerous. Success is dangerous. It tempts us to forget God. Listen to what Tim Keller says. He writes, There is a terrible spiritual danger involved in the receiving of any blessing. Success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. God-given victory can easily be used to confirm the belief that, in fact, we have earned the blessing for ourselves and should receive the praise and glory for that success. The Israelites repeatedly forgot God during the era of the judges. We have seen it. We will continue to see it as we work our way through this book. But Gideon did that in his own life. Trusted God. God blessed him. God provided for him. He became accustomed to that. And he began in pride to forget God. In chapter 6, when the Lord first calls him, Gideon is a man of no confidence in himself. He's insignificant. He doesn't have any trust in his own ability. He's doubtful even that he can do what God tells him he's got to do when God promises that he's going to do it for him. In chapter 7, when God reassures Gideon, who's still struggling to believe that God can do what he said he's going to do, he reassures him with his word through a dream given to a Midianite soldier that he sends Gideon down to listen to the interpretation of the soldier outside the camp. And when Gideon receives this reassurance, what do we see him doing? Chapter 7, verse 15 says, When God reassured him, immediately he worshipped. He, he got it. He realized, you are God. You will do what you say. It doesn't matter my strength, my weakness. It will be you. And he worships. But that's the last time we find Gideon worshiping anywhere in this text. In chapter 8, when his fellow Israelites in Succoth and Penuel refuse to give his troops food, he takes it personally. And he shames them. He beats the men of Succoth. And then he murders the men of Penuel. These are his own countrymen. These are fellow Israelites. We see him tracking down the Midianite kings. And as we learn in verses 18 through 21, it's not out of submission to the Lord, but it's on a personal vendetta. He wants to avenge his brother's death. He's so bent on humiliating these kings that he orders his young son to kill them. What's going on here? What's happened to Gideon? He's forgotten God. He's quit thinking about his life theologically in light of who God is. His purpose in the plan of God, in the work of God. He's begun to think of himself 
personally in terms of his own aspirations, his own desires, his own goals. That's our great temptation too, isn't it, brothers and sisters? God blesses us. We see his hand of blessing upon our efforts. We thank him for us. Success is attained. And then we start living as if the things that we have accomplished, the things that we have received, we have attained by our own strength. We forget that all that has come to us, all that we have in our lives has been given us by the kind hand of our gracious God. We forget, as the Bible says, that every good and perfect gift comes from above, comes down from the Father of lights. Success tempts us to forget God. It also tempts us to use God. Gideon set up an ephod in his hometown. When he did this, he virtually assured that people would come to him for guidance. Now he has Urim and Thurim. The golden ephod did indeed capture the attention of fellow Israelites because verse 27 says, And all Israel hoard after it there. They gave themselves up to false worship centered upon that golden ephod. Instead of going to Shiloh to worship God in the way that he had prescribed at that time, they started going to Ophrah. Instead of seeking, seeking guidance from the high priest who wore the true ephod God had provided, they went to Gideon and his golden ephod. Instead of worshiping God in the tabernacle with all of God's requirements for the blood sacrifices to remind them that they needed their sins to be paid for by blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. They simply made up their own rules going to Orphra to whore after the gold ephod there. Instead of using his accomplishments and position to serve God, Gideon used God to serve himself. And he did this after verbally having stated what was true. The Lord will rule over you. What we see happening in this 8th chapter of Judges is Gideon falling into a pattern of serious spiritual decline. He's accomplished much. And he's the object of much praise and adulation. And as he begins to listen to all of the praise and accolades, he shifts into a subtle frame of mind that while giving lip service to the Lord, actually is far from trusting the Lord, remembering the Lord, and serving the Lord in humble obedience. Brothers and sisters, such temptations always lurk in the wake of success. That's why Paul writes what he does in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Be careful. Be thoughtful. That's what the Bible says. Be on your guard. Don't forget your God. That's why Moses warned the Israelites the way he did in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that Jared read for us earlier. When you enter the land and you begin to experience prosperity and you begin to know my blessings, don't forget God. Paul warns of this very danger. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he writes specifically 
about how financially successful Christians are to be encouraged. He warns against those who would treat godliness as a pathway for financial gain in verse 5. And then he goes on in verses 17 and 19 through 19. He says this to Timothy. Here's how you're to pastor successful people. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What is he saying? Don't be prideful in what you have accomplished. Remember that what you are and what you have is because of God's kind providence to you. All the energy that you've exercised to be successful, that energy has come to you from God. Hope in God. Remember, He's the one who is the source of all blessings. Success is dangerous. It tempts you to forget God. It tempts you to use God. But secondly, the second lesson of Gideon's life is that success is inadequate. It's not enough. It can be good, but it's not enough. It's not enough for your own welfare. By so many standards, Gideon was successful, but his success could not accomplish for Gideon what Gideon desperately needed. In fact, the text shows us that because he did not resist the dangers that come with success, his subsequent actions of constructing this golden ephod as verse 27 says, became a snare to Gideon and to his family. What a sad epitaph. The fruit of blessings, the fruit of your success, becomes a spiritual snare for both him and his family. The reality is, brothers and sisters, no matter how successful you become in whatever endeavors you're engaged in, you cannot be your own Savior. We all need a Savior. And none of us is adequate to save ourselves no matter what we accomplish in this lifetime. You know, if you're successful enough, you can create an illusion that all is well, that you're really safe, that you have everything you need, you don't need God. But then, even with that illusion, the day's going to come when you're going to die. And when you die... If you have put your hope in what you've attained, in what you've done in life, in that day, at that moment, when you stand before God, it will all be exposed as empty, inadequate. Jesus made this very point in a parable that he told in Luke chapter 12. In verse 16, he says it like this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, fool, this night your soul's required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. No matter what you accomplish in life, it will not be enough on the day you stand before God to hold up and find salvation, find security. Success is inadequate for you. It's good. It's not enough. It's not enough for others as well. Gideon was a successful judge in so many respects. But Gideon could not ultimately save Israel from their sinful, destructive ways. As soon as he died, what happened? They reverted back to their pattern of following their pagan neighbors, worshiping false gods. When they tried to make Gideon a king, the people were expressing something that is deeply ingrained in every person. That is, the, the desire, the longing to be protected, to be cared for, to be shepherded well. But as mighty in battle as Gideon proved to be, he was not the king they needed. He appeared to be the king they wanted. But at best, he was only a poor shadow of the king they needed. They needed a better king, the true king. The king that the New Testament reveals to us is named Jesus Christ. The king whom all the judges and all the kings and all the prophets of the Old Testament pointed toward as they fulfilled their Old Testament roles. He's the king that, as he put it, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The king who did not cling to all of the benefits that belonged to him in eternity past as the Son of God, but who willingly gave up those benefits for the purpose of bringing about the salvation which every one of us in this room needs. He's the king who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. He's the only king who can save you in this life and the life to come. Do you have Jesus as your king? The men of Israel went to Gideon. They said, you rule over us. Have you come to Jesus and said, Lord, you rule over me. Save me. Protect me. Guide me. If you have not come to Jesus Christ as your King, your Savior today, I call upon you. Trust Him. Submit yourself to Him. Appeal to Him. Go to Him. Make the request of Him. Ask Him to save you because He delights in saving people like you and me. That's why He came. To give His life a ransom. To exchange His life for ours, so that all who trust him will be saved. Success is not an evil thing. Far from it, it's a good thing. We're told in the scriptures, whatever our hands find to do, we are to do it with all of our might. So work hard at important things, right things, good things, God-honoring things. Give yourself to them and strive to be successful. But recognize that if God enables you to be successful, with success will come dangers 
And success will never be enough, no matter how much you attain in this life. Don't let success cause you to forget God. And don't let success lead you into ways of living that you think because of what you have, because of what you've done, you're okay. You need a Savior. The Savior who gave up His life in order to rescue us and redeem us for God. So in and through every good work that you do, all of your endeavors, remember Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus Christ. Trust Jesus Christ. And acknowledge that it is His grace and His mercy that has provided for you every step of your way. Continue to depend upon Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this sober reminder in the life of one who is so eminently useful. One whose faith is held up to us as an example of the dangers and inadequacy of success. Oh, deliver us from delusions of thinking that we can do and attain for ourselves that which we ultimately need. Forgive us for forgetting you as we go about our lives and deliver us from continuing on that pathway of forgetfulness. But where we have, oh God, convict us and restore us and return us so that we will recognize and remember all we are and all we have is because of your grace and your mercy to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to see him with faith, to remember him, to hope in him, and to use all that you've given to us for him. For we pray in his name. Amen.